Hello, 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 and welcome to Gritty Reboot. Uh, today we are going to be doing something a little bit different from our normal format. We are going to be talking about the films of Nicolas Cage. Why did we make this decision, Meredith? Because we love Nicolas Cage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I suppose that we do. Now, we, we picked two movies out of his catalog. Yeah, we picked uh, one that's one of his more popular additions to his career, which is Face Off. And then you picked something a little different. So uh, I guess um, let's not waste any time. Let's get right into talking about Face Off. I've been uh, chasing this guy ever since I joined the force. He, he has no conscience and he, uh, he shows no, no remorse. He's the mastermind behind numerous bombings and political assassinations. He uh, has a felony list a mile long, murder, arson, kidnapping, terrorism, you name it. He's the most dangerous and brilliant criminal mind I've ever known. I, for years, I've, I've been watching him, tracking him, studying his every every move. I know his every every mannerism, facial tick gesture. I know him better than he knows himself. And now, after all this time, I finally figured out a way to trap him. I will become him. So, I... Face Off came out, what, 1996, 97? 97. 1997. I, um, I saw this movie uh, with my parents, and I remember really loving it back in the day, and I know my parents really enjoyed it. I don't remember much about the actual experience in the theater, but I, I know it was, it was a crowd-pleasing film. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I've liked Face Off probably less and less as I've seen it. I still appreciate it as a bit of a guilty pleasure, but... At the end of the day, it's not necessarily one of my favorite woo films that I go back and check out, and sort of the same thing for for Cage and uh, and Travolta as well. I don't like uh, John Woo as a director, so I just love this movie. I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's doesn't take itself too seriously, but um, I, I think that's a problem that it has. Like it does take itself seriously. It does take its time to like talk about the pain that's going through Sean Archer and the issues that he has with his wife and these things come in and they certainly do help give a little shade to Nicolas Cage's performance, but they kind of slow the movie down, sadly. Yeah. Um, I, I guess if you want to look at it that way, I just look at it as a fun romp. It's a fun action movie. It's not supposed to be, I mean, if you started looking at every little thing that's wrong with this movie, you could definitely not have a good time because there are a lot of things that are wrong with the movie. Um, there's no way in hell somebody can do a face trans transplant. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the way that they did. Yeah. So I understand that that is, you have to just suspend your disbelief a little bit. Yeah, you, you, you do. We're not really going to talk about the, the science of face-off because I think that's sort of hustling backwards to talk yeah. about how, how that works. Especially with Ridiculous as it, even, even though the movie, I mean, that does get to a bit of my issue. The movie spends a lot of time trying to get you to kind of believe the science of the movie. And I think that could be time better spent, to be honest. And I think later on, the movie really wants to get you emotionally invested in uh, what's going on in the picture. And I think that is to its detriment. And it kind of just slows things down a little bit. And I think this is a general problem I've seen with a lot of John Woo's work is that when he gets Americanized, he loses a bit of that kind of madness that he had in Hong Kong where anything could fly and anything was was possible in his movies 
And at the end of the day, this is a bit of a pale imitation of it, but it is one of his better American movies by a long, by a wide margin. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, like I said, I'm not a big fan of John Woo's movies. He, he's very, uh, he likes to put a lot of style. It's like the lens flares with, uh, what's his face? Abrams. Yeah. JJ Abrams. Mm-hmm. Like it just drives me insane. Well, Wu's uh, flourishes, they, they don't necessarily bother me in the movie. Like I said, I just wish it was a bit more like his, his older fare. It's pretty silly, but I, I think the film could have been a bit better. Um, but the one thing I think that does certainly hold the movie up are, are their performances. Okay, so the movie starts off with uh, John Travolta's son dying. And then we get uh, six years later. So we're already, we get his son dying. And then we already jumping ahead six years. Um we have we meet our characters John Travolta who plays Sean Archer and Castor Troy who's Nicolas Cage plays. Yeah. And Nicolas Cage is the one that shoots his son. He's hamming it up as a bad guy through this whole movie. Nicolas Cage and then through part of John Travolta's performance as well. Yeah, that is sort of a notable thing about the movie. The Castor Troy character doesn't really change despite who plays him and I, that is one thing that the movie had to get right and it really does. I think the movie is important that it has its its two actors that it, it needs a t- two actors that are can play off of each other well and they picked a really good team in uh, Nicolas Cage and John Travolta. Yeah, you can tell they both really revel in having to play the Castor Troy part. They both had quite a bit of fun with it. And managed oddly enough, I I do believe that Nicolas Cage almost has uh, more fun when he has to play Sean Archer you know, a much more quiet and reserved character in the, in the same film. Yeah. Like he, he does a really nice job trying to make the later, basically the, the back half of the second act story work with him trying to reconnect with his wife. I think his performance almost makes that palpable and, and almost makes it work. But I mean, that's just a testament to Nicholas Cage. You can see him going, you know, crazy as that priest who's feeling up the 15 year old girl in the choir you know, and an hour later, you know, he's having a heartfelt scene with Joan Allen as a completely different person. Yeah. You know, but that, that is sort of, you know, what makes Nicolas Cage, Nicolas Cage. Yeah, he's great. And that's why we chose this movie and one other movie of his. We just love Nicolas Cage and we want to pay respects to him for our 25th anniversary yeah. episode. Yeah. So it's our 25th episode. We haven't <laughs> been doing this 25 years. Um, but it, it's, you know, we always sort of do that. We, we try to do something a little bit different every time. Um, we get to a 10 or a five or something like that. So the 25th, we, we did something that was a little bit out there. So that's why we're talking about Nick Cage. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. What else do we got to talk about? Exactly. Okay. So we, get, we do have a great cast. Joan, Joan Allen is the wife. What do you think about the cast? Well, Wu had obviously done pretty well with a broken arrow a couple years earlier. So he got himself a pretty large budget and, and put it to use on, on a very nice cast. You know, it's not just, our two leads, you know, Joan Allen is a very accomplished actress. Uh, Dominique Swain was an up-and-coming young performer. Didn't really work out for her, but she still had a, a number of entertaining parts in the 90s. So I think this cast does a, a really fantastic job. Who fought for Joan Allen, actually. Oh, I can imagine. They wanted somebody the, younger. Yeah, I, I would assume they, they probably would want somebody, you know, a little bit more attractive. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, Joan Allen's always an incredibly accomplished actress, and I know that's a stigma she's had to fight for a long, long Long portion of her career. We can obviously tell that the death of his son has destroyed Sean Archer because he's got a major stick up his ass through part of this very beginning of this movie. Yeah, yeah. He's really thrown into high gear as um, 
as a grieving father who is just kind of a jerk to everybody. Yeah. What do you think about the uh, the proposal made in this movie of him taking face off of Castor Troy and putting it in on his own? Like, that's such a weird request. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it very, very much is. I... Like I said, it's one of the things I enjoy is that the movie, the screenwriter spent a lot of time how he was going to talk, you know, discuss this whole theory and this idea of, of switching faces and, and provide a very good reason. You know, the script is very high concept in that respect, you know, because you have not just that, but you have like a bomb as well. And like that puts urgency on him having to make the switch. But I, I really do like, you know, the way Nicolas Cage plays it when he first finds himself as Castor Troy. Looking in the mirror, you know, Sean Archer seeing a different face, a face somebody he hates. I, I do very much enjoy that. But I think one of the elements that I think gets a little bit lost is that, that you know, the pure hatred that he has for uh, Castor Troy, you know, because once it's done, he's like, well, you take this face and you burn it once this procedure is done. You know, those are nice little character moments that I really like his undying and burning hatred towards Castor. Yeah, and I think the feeling's mutual because uh, I think uh, Castor Troy's pretty pissed off when he wakes up and he doesn't have a face. Yeah. <laughs> and he yeah, finds and out the only face that's left is his arch nemesis. Yeah, and John Woo did a lot of action, but he wasn't always big on gore. So I, I think the way they did that was actually pretty cool. With um, You really only get quick glimpses of his face and then you get a full reveal, but it's in someone's eyeglasses, so you don't really see it full on. Because it would be pretty gross. But I think that's a, another pretty nice scene. Yeah. And then the last time we get to see Castor Troy as Nicolas Cage. We also get a close-up of Joan Allen's ass. We we do. When he, <laughs> he makes that comment, I, I hate to see you go, but I love to watch you leave. And yeah. we might get the only cinematic close-up of Joan Allen's ass ever. <laughs> it might, it might be the only one of those. <laughs> How do you feel about the composer of this movie? The composer's name is John Powell, and it's his first movie. Forgettable. Yeah. When you said the composer, I was like, I don't have a single note for that because I can't remember any musical sting from this. He was the pupil to Hans Zimmer. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well, you know, sometimes it doesn't always work out. <laughs> or maybe he's done other work than this one, but I, I can't think of a single note from this movie that stuck out in my mind as something that the composer wrote. Like right now, I'm really struggling to try to remember any <laughs> kind of movement or piece from this movie, and I, I just can't. So whatever it is, it's pretty forgetful. Would you get a Wilhelm scream? Oh, it's always nice to get one of those. Yeah. I didn't catch where, where was it? Uh, it's where Dubov pushes the gurney into the guards in the, on the elevator. Mm, okay. So it's always fun to recognize a Wilhelm scream. Yeah, I, I like to catch those two in, in all the movies that I watch. Too bad you don't have an example of that. No, I didn't put it on. I don't the... know if everybody knows what a Wilhelm scream is. Yeah, yeah. I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll edit one in here, but I did not put it um, in the sound effects, but I, I showed it. <laughs> so we always have one of those to indicate when it happens. We always took a, used to take a shot whenever we were watching movies with some friends and we catch a Wilhelm. So uh, I, like I said, I missed it this time, but then again, you know, sometimes you just sort of tune them out. Yeah. Yeah, you just sort of forget like, oh yeah, that was a Wilhelm, so. Okay, they perform the surgery. Archer, one of my favorite scenes, Archer Troy goes to visit Castor Troy in prison. Um, that's how he knows that he's, he's fucked. Yeah. He's utterly and just fucked. Yeah. So uh, it's Nicolas Cage kind of playing, or John Travolta playing it out as, Nick, as Castor Troy. It's pretty, 
it's a, it's a good scene. Yeah, yeah. When they, they do the reveal, because at that point, Sean Archer has completed his mission. He's found out where the bomb is. He tricked his, his fake brother. And he's just, you know, about to finish this whole thing up, go home and call it a day. And that's when everything goes to shit. You know, he finds yeah. himself walking in the room. And we have a whole new second act basically brewing right there. You know, because a story that becomes about two a man switching faces in an undercover story just goes completely by the wayside. And then we get basically a man trying to get his identity back. Yeah. So we get a completely different story from this moment on. And then once again, we are reintroduced the fun bad guy character, except played by John Travolta this time. Yeah. And who does a really nice job? I think Cage does a better job, but Travolta's no slack in this role. And actually, I think Travolta does a much better job as the more pensive Sean Archer. Yeah. That's when Caster, Caster Not Troy tries to escape the prison. I called him Not Troy in my notes. That's fine. No, I, I, understand, I understand where you're getting yeah. at. Yeah. And then I called Archer, Archer Troy. <laughs> he goes to the cemetery with his wife to see the son. It's, a, it's, a, it's another good scene because he's kind of forced to go to the one place he probably doesn't want to be. Or does he even care? I think the scene does a nice job where it shows you that that's exactly what's going on. Caster, this is, he doesn't want to see the aftermath of the things that he does. He never wants to see the aftermath of anything that ever occurs. So he has to stare at that harsh reality of like, you know, what he did. And yes, he doesn't care, but that doesn't mean he's not a human. Yeah. Like he can still see another person in pain from something that he did on a whim. You know, like he wasn't like he, he wanted to kill Sean. He wanted to kill Sean, but there's probably better ways he could have done it. And he certainly could have waited till his kid wasn't in his hands. Yeah, it, it is. It's a nice sequence because he gets to see that and you can see how uncomfortable he is and how much he'd rather be anywhere else than, than at that moment. The co-screenwriter Mike Werb got the idea for the face surgery from a friend who got, had was in a hang, hand gliding accident. Yeah. They had to remove most of the skin on his face to reconstruct the bone underneath. And then they had to, they put his face back on. Yeah. So that's where this movie comes from. Yeah. And then he spent a ton of time like, how could I make this scientific? How could I turn it into an action movie? Yeah. There was an actual first real life face transplant. It happened in 2012 on Richard Norris, who accidentally shot himself in the face with a shotgun. Yeah. Yeah. I actually was aware of this. I actually was yeah. aware of this one as well. Because I remember that how the story met head, headlines with the real face off or something like that. Yeah. 2012, so it didn't happen that long ago. No, no, not too long ago. And I, I think he's okay. I think the the face ended up holding. Nice. Yeah, because I know they had done something like that before, and, and basically the face was rejected. Yeah, well, that's what happens when it's... Yeah, just like any kind of transplant. Organ. So. Originally, the, uh, the, the pair here was supposed to be uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone. That would have made for a much better film. You think so? Yeah, because I think you would have had two titans. Of the action film genre together. I don't think they have the acting chops for it. Well, no, I mean, but that's never stopped Arnold Schwarzenegger before or anything <laughs> like that. It, it would have had to be, be retooled into a different movie. And I, that is something that weighed Arnold down later in his career. He wanted to do some more expansive parts and he just didn't have the acting range to really pull those off. And he, he, could, he would have struggled here, but I think Stallone could have done fine. Nicolas Cage considers this movie one of the best movies ever made. Hmm. Seriously, uh, you don't agree with him. He's made a lot of a great. I think I think he's made better action movies than this one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think The Rock is is a better movie than this. Con Air. Con Air is more fun. Con Air knows a hundred percent what it is and never takes time to 
do anything that it shouldn't be done in a cheesy movie about people, you know, a group of convicts flying through the air and, you know, guards dying. You know, this movie takes all sorts of detours to kind of legitimize itself. And that kind of hurts it a bit. And, you know, Conair doesn't do those sorts of things. Now, after those movies, I kind of have to search. Maybe National Treasure might be a better movie than this one. I'm not a big fan of those flicks, but I know you are. Yeah, yeah, I really like them. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the action in this movie? You know, he was able to get all those actors to buy into his gun style action and everything like that. And I think this is certainly one of his better American films for that. You know, it's way better than something like Paycheck was a few years later with Ben Affleck and Uma Thurman. And well, you know, I've actually, I, I never really thought that wind talkers is an action movie since it's a war picture, a, a really weak one as a matter of fact, but that it does technically have nice action sequences in it, but maybe John Woo doing a war film wasn't the best idea in the world. <laughs> no. What do you think about the final showdown? There's a lot of explosions. There is. There's there action is. by boat. Yeah, we, we get a boat chase in there. And I, I think the boat chase is actually pretty cool. You know, as far as boat chases go, I, I do enjoy it. And I like the final stunt of them sort of flying through the air over and over again. You know, back in a 90s era where you can clearly tell it's not Nicolas Cage and John Travolta flying through the air. Where today they would have taken the time to replace the stuntman's head. Or have the stuntman wear a, a, a realistic mask. Yeah, because the jump off the top of the prison was a 70-foot drop, and it was done by a professional high diver. That makes sense. I mean, that's one of the things you 70 get. 70 feet. One of the things you get in the 90s, people actually doing those kinds of stunts. Yeah. It, it looks cool. You sort of forget about it every now and then because, you know, that would obviously be done, you know, CG today. I mean, you might get a performer. For the most part, any more difficult effect that could cost like that, it's just a lot easier to just drop a CG guy in. I always wondered about that because when he falls, he moves his legs back and forth. Yeah. Like he's walking. Yeah. And then he puts them together to get into the water. Yeah. So I wonder it, if that's like a technique that they teach. It, it is. Yeah. You have to put your feet together and then you're going to form a seal on your face. Because you don't want the water rushing up your nose as you hit the ground, as you hit the yeah. water. Yeah. Because it'll rush it. Yeah. It, we, that apparently can mess you up. It almost knock you out. You can get so much water in there. And it's not like Club Dread. You don't have to worry about your asshole. It's my favorite joke in that movie. You have to close your ass when you jump off so the water doesn't shoot in there. And the girl comes up. She's like, oh, my ass. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I guess that lets you know how much I enjoyed Face Off this time. I'm, I'm thinking about Club Dread and the, while we're talking about it. Wow. I, I can't believe you didn't like it as much. Well, it's not that I didn't like it. It's just Face Off isn't one of my favorite movies. It's not one of my favorite 90s action movies. You know, I think it's above middle of the road, but I, I, you know, I've never really thought of it in the high esteem. A lot of people did. The movie got very good reviews when it came out, you know, from critics. And I, I was a bit cold on it then. I just haven't warmed on it over time. Like my nostalgia for it is close to nil. Oh my God. I love the movie. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a cool, fun movie, but you know, I just, like if it's on it, it's, if it's on a television, I will watch it. Yeah. That's, that's the kind of movie I feel like it's, it is for me. All right. So are you ready to move into our. Next movie? Six Too Young is here, baby. <laughs> and I'm gonna take care of you. Thursday started out with a bang. <laughs> Heat, humidity, moonlight, all the elements in place for a long weekend. I was good at my job. There were periods when my hands moved with the speed and skill beyond me. How long have you been doing this? Five years. Wow, you must have seen some things, huh? But in the last year, I'd started to lose that control. I've been seeing the ghosts. You ever notice people who see things are always crazy? Mm-hmm. I just needed a few slow nights. 
followed by a couple of days off. Yeah, yeah. So I picked uh, Bringing Out the Dead for a couple of reasons. One of which is that it's such a rare thing to find a Scorsese film as The Hidden Gym. And that's exactly what Bringing Out the Dead is. Because you have a Scorsese movie where nobody really champions this movie. I, I don't hear people talking about this as their favorite Scorsese film. No. You know, and I, I mean, I hear people defending, like, you know, Nope. Yeah, comedy and, and things like that. You know, some some of the obviously lower tier work from. I think it's his only work that doesn't have an Oscar nod. That could be possible. In all honesty, yeah. almost everything he did got a nomination. But I mean, we're still talking about you know uh, Scorsese at the height of his power. You know, in his prime. You know, in the late nineties, he could do pretty much whatever he wanted. He hadn't won an Oscar yet, but that was that really was not important. It didn't really affect him in any way. It just was a story come Oscar time that he hadn't won one. I mean. Everybody knew he was the best there is. You know, that, that really wasn't up for debate. I listened to a, an interview uh, he did with uh, Roger Ebert. And he briefly talked about the genesis of this film. And he said that when he had read the novel, all he could think about was Nick Cage's eyes when he read about the lead character. Hmm. And so that's who he had in mind uh, to play this role, which I think is very interesting because it's not a typical Cage part. It's a bit more subdued. A yeah. bit, a bit, a bit. There's, there's a few cage moments in it where he raises up. He freaks up. out. But I mean, they're, they're all within the context of the story. They're not just a character kind of freaking out in a situation. Like, you know, there some serious things are going on or he's just having playful fun. You just kind of find out little things about his character as you go through this movie. Yeah. Like I didn't realize he was a drunk until like three quarters of the way in. Yeah. When he starts drinking in the. Well, you get like little hints yeah. at it. Then when he actually, it, it comes out with it, the movie comes out with it. You're like, oh, that's why. Yeah. yeah I love those subtle little things that Scorsese's done with this, this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Also, one of the other things to, to mention is that this is a, a, a rare film that features Nicolas Cage where he does not give the strongest performance in this movie. And I think the strongest performance is given by Ving Rhames. Everybody, that's so funny that you say that because when I looked through the reviews for the user reviews, yeah. every single person that I had a one star review mentioned Ving Rhames. Yeah, Ving Rhames literally comes on screen for about 15 or 20 minutes and steals the scene. Yeah. From, from Nick Cage, a very difficult thing to do. Does it effortlessly. He's the, the best character in this movie. Um, he's another paramedic who's been dealing with a long time, but has found a way to deal with the, the mental struggles of the job. Yeah. And his work with Nick Cage, I mean, that, that's probably the movie's most electric scene. You know, the movie has real life and, and, and Cage isn't miserable or his character is miserable throughout uh, running with him, you know, which I find interesting as well. Like he can find some pleasure in what he does with him still. Yeah. And like I said, it's just such a strong performance. He just, you know, almost grabs the camera and demands your attention. And somehow like Ving Rhames looks older then than he does today. I, I, don't I know. know. Yeah, because you would have thought he was like 50 something, but Ving Rames was, was in his thirties at the time. Weird. Yeah. He really does. Cause I, I the, the first time I saw it, I thought it was somewhat older and I think I'd remembered somebody far older in my head when I, I went back to rewatch it. Cause I don't think I'd watched this movie since maybe 2004, maybe earlier. In 1999 is when it came out. Yeah. All right. So we meet obviously Frank, the paramedic who's Nicholas Cage is playing. He takes a an old guy that they it's their first call. Um, they take him to an overcrowded hospital. He meets one of the family members, um, and that's 
Patricia Arquette's character. Yeah, uh, Nick Cage's real wife at the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were very, very excited to work together on this project, even though I think they would be divorced less than a year later. Two years. Oh, oh two years. Yeah. I, I know it was. It, they did not last long. And, you know, as I've talked about it again, you're talking about more career work from another actress. So this is one of Patricia Arquette's uh, better roles. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, and she's I mean, great in everything. Well, this is a part of a woman who has a drug problem, and her father is. Well, I mean, he's dead. Basically, he's, his body is yeah. a husk holding on to to life. The the doctors refuse to let him go, and so does the family. As a matter of fact, I think in a lot of movies, this ends up being a really flat character without a lot of dimension to it. Like just someone who's there as someone to sort of save the protagonist or give him mm-hmm. something to do. And uh, this movie was written by Paul Schrader before I start talking about him. Uh, but he wrote Taxi Driver as well. Has a long history of working with Scorsese. A fantastic storyteller. The way he reveals more about her character and tells us more about her is truly fascinating. And it gives a very talented actress like Patricia Arquette something to sink her teeth into. Because I think in 99, in that same year, she has to wade through crap like um, Stigmata. You know, she's in some really lousy films. Or, you know, even fair from higher tier directors that is a very good, like Lost Highway, which is around the same era, maybe a couple years earlier. But it's it's just fantastic work from her. And it's so weird. I forget how talented she is. There's like this gulf of great performances from this all the way to like boyhood, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I mean, that's not necessarily her fault. It just lets you know what kind of roles are really out there, you know, for women. I think she spent a lot of time on TV playing uh, the medium in that show. And I mean, nobody even remembers that. I mean, she's such a great actress. I feel bad she didn't get more high quality work in the late '90s and early '00s. Well, she's not typical Hollywood look to her. I, I think she is. I always thought so. Well, yeah, but she she isn't. I can mm. tell you, and that's probably why she didn't get a whole lot of roles, especially back then. Well, now she, she would, but yeah. Well, she, she's incredibly talented, and she's one of the many aspects of the film that. Helps raise us above what the, the kind of standard fare that you, that you might get because a story like this could be a mess. But you know, with Paul Schrader screen, you know, adapting the the book and Scorsese at the helm, like this is like a symphony being conducted perfectly. You know, what you think is you know disorder or chaos is not that at all. You know, the movie is able to jump back and forth between so many different genres. You know, because to some extent we haven't really recapped the movie because the recap of the movie is a paramedic in the worst three days of his career. Yeah. And that, that's it. Like, the, I mean, yes, there, this they movie go is on various calls. The movie is not plotless. It's not, but it doesn't have what I'd call like a strong narrative throughout. No, it doesn't. Yeah. This is more about his adventures and, and him dealing with his situations. What, what is interesting about this is that, you know, we meet reoccurring characters over and over again. And the more we learn about them, the more we see the world and we see like, the sorrow and the grayness that that Frank Nicholas Cage's character has to see as well. I think one of my my favorite characters is our, our junkie who can't stop drinking water, and he's played, oh, yeah. he's played by uh, uh, the singer Mark Anthony. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it, you, you completely unrecognizable. Nope. Yeah, completely unrecognizable. It wasn't until and I never realized until this viewing when I went to look up the cast list after the movie and realized that that was him. And I was like, holy shit! I never would have thought he was capable of that kind of performance because i think i've only seen him in that and like the dad in man on fire yeah yeah i mean of nothing parts so i i never considered him an actor in any way shape or form he's fantastic here he really is 
you know, he's a character situation, you know, goes down and down. He's just almost, he's just got mental illness. Yeah. And that, that's it. You know, he's got mental illness and, and no one will treat him for that. No, yeah, no, nobody cares. No, they, oh, well, they lock Patricia him Marquette up. Does Cause she knew him from beforehand. Yeah. But I mean, it lets you know the kind of relationship these people can have. He has a great sequence when they're in the ambulance and they picked up Michael K. Williams. He's been shot and he is dying clearly. Mm-hmm. And Mark Anthony's character is so upset that he's dying because he's the one that's been begging and praying for death in some way, shape, or form. And he has a great interaction. He's like, he looks at Michael K. Williams, Nicholas Cage does, and goes, you're not going to die, but don't worry, you are, when he looks over at Mark Anthony. You know, it's this running gag that keeps going on. You know, it's, it's a weird movie to, it's such a dark film to have these kind of running jokes in it, but there's these nice moments of levity. Yeah, because that's how real comedy. That's how real life is. You have yeah. gallows humor while you're in the middle of some really nasty shit sometimes. It's just how life is. And it's something that, you know, Scorsese and, and Schrader can just grab effortlessly. And it's one of the things that I mean, it makes the movie stand out. Like you just, you're aware of it. I mean, you're aware from the high quality of the movie, like as the opening shots are going down because Scorsese is working like a madman. If you've ever seen the intro to Taxi Driver, he finds the scariest ways and the most intimidating ways to shoot a taxi. Mm-hmm. And he does a very similar thing at the start of this movie where he finds like demonic angles and, and ways to make like the ambulance looks so imposing almost shots to make it look like a prison. You, you mean you have such a small confined space and they have so many creative angles in it that I, I'm just amazed by, you know, and, and the editing is, is, is so insane as well. Like sometimes they'll just break 180 for no particular reason, but it leads to the madness of the night. And then one of my favorite aspects in the cinematography is this kind of halo lighting from above where characters are overexposed from a, a, a an upper source. Mm-hmm. And I love the way that looks in the New York night. You know, because this is New York, you know, filmed in 1998, so it has the feel of a pre-Giuliani New York City. Yeah, it does. And it really does. Like, you feel that dirt and that grime that's there, but the life that's in the city, you know, that, you know, eventually New York would become so sick of that situation, they return to the cruelest man they've ever let be, the mayor of New York City, and he waged his war on junkies and the homeless and, and shooed them away, <laughs> out of sight, out of mind. And this movie reminds you that those are real people. Like, they can be saved. They, they, they might not be, but anybody like that just needs... A little something. Yeah, they need a hand out there. They, they need somebody as troubled as he is, as much sorrow as he carries. They need somebody like Frank to save them at that last possible, the darkest moment. He's the only person that can do that job. And he cares. He does. And that that's what's killing him and tearing him apart. Yeah. He can't stop seeing her, the ghost. Yeah. You know, there's, it, she shows up and pops up randomly throughout the movie. And I think near the end of the film, there's a great shot where Patricia Arquette's character, it makes me wish I knew character names more. I only know them when they're named Kano and Sonia. I know Rose is the. Yeah, that's it. So he sees her late and then she transforms to the ghost. Mm-hmm. And the voice is still delivered from Bartisha Arquette's voice. And it's one of those things. I mean, it's how we end the movie, basically. And it's such a poignant shot, you know, when he's like, I'm so sorry. He's like, it's not your fault. You know, and it's like, you, you carry that sorrow. We didn't ask you to do that. You don't have to. But it's just who he is. He has no other way to do it. You know, we watched The Simpsons the other day, and they, they did a great bit where Bart pissed off Marge and... Lisa talks to him and is like, listen, mom is not like the way I am or you are, you know, her heart's not going to wipe clean. It's going to absorb everything like this dirty bathroom rug. 
And that's kind of how Nick Cage is. He can't help but absorb all of that. Yeah. You know, and he, and you know, I mean, it's literally tearing him apart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, emotionally and, and physically, I mean, the level of bags under his eyes, you would almost think he's a zombie by the final frame. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about that. The quasi zombie movie. Like in a way. he gets, he looks worse and worse as yeah. the film goes along. Almost to a ridiculous degree, but yeah, no, he, he really it's does. Like he's have, going through withdrawals and yeah, yeah. everything. Yeah. He's clearly, you know, getting minutes of sleep a day. You know, that as much as, you know, when his body might nod off in pure exhaustion and then hopping right back into the fray again. You know, he can't sleep without the nightmares of who's, who's lost, you know, who, who's died under his care. You know, it, it really is amazing that what he's able to work in a more subtle performance. And it makes me wish Nick Cage did more subtle work more because he's good at both. He's good at going over the top yeah. and going crazy and running down the streets of New York going, I'm a vampire, I'm a vampire, I'm a vampire, as well as, you know, just giving a glance of heartbreak, you know, when he sees Michael K. Williams' character die. Yeah. You know, just one look and Nick Cage can do so much. You can see why Scorsese said he saw his eyes when he read about the weariness of that, that character. And Nick Cage is, is amazing here. And, and it's incredible to think. Nobody talks about it, and there were no Oscar nods. Yeah, uh, Scorsese and Cage rode along with the real New York City paramedics and to prep for this film. And, you know, that's a, a notable thing, too, because Nicolas Cage is not a method guy. He's like, I'll figure it out when I get there. That's always been his style. Now, I don't know if that's, you know, hey, I'm working with Scorsese. Let's, let's up the game a yeah. little bit. Or I, I think maybe he just read this part and was like, I need to get more inside the head of a paramedic. Yeah, maybe he didn't understand what they go through Yeah, and, wanted to. And either way, whatever he did, I think... I think turned out great. I mean, it, it, it's one of his finest performances and it is a Scorsese film that's in my top five, to be perfectly honest. And I, I'm not leaving anything out. I mean, I'm, I'm going to call Will later. We're going to have a big debate about where this ranks in his pantheon. Cause I, I know this is one that he, he doesn't take very seriously, but this is a, it's a great movie. It it's a great, great American movie. I enjoyed movie. it. It's the first time I ever saw it. And it's from an era that we're never going to get back again. That late nineties celluloid, you know, the dirty and griminess in New York pre 9-11. Everything about that is completely lost to time. And this movie is a perfect time capsule of what that area that era was like for filmmaking. And the it's, it's a weird period piece. It's a strange movie. It's a period piece for what, seven years, eight years mm -hmm. earlier? Yeah, because it's supposed to take place in the early 90s and it was shot in 98. So you're not too far off, but that's sort of a weird thing. Most period pieces at least go 20 years in the past. Yeah, I mentioned that Scorsese and Cage wrote along with the New York City paramedics. The uh before writing the script, Paul Schrader went along on several ambulance rides. Now that I believe, Paul Schrader is a is the kind of guy who throws himself into his work. So, his first night he rode, he had a contend with a grizzly, uh, a grizzly sight. Yeah, it was a homeless man who was cut in half by a subway. That's the job. Yeah, that's the job. Yeah, that's. I, I know, like on Reddit, when they talk about like. What's the most disturbing thing you've ever seen? They almost had to say excluding paramedics and stuff like that. Because paramedics, they're the guys who get there and they see, you know, the charred bodies, the bodies cut in half, you know, people barely clinging to life when they should be dead. You know, they see some truly horrible things. And this movie does a great job showing who some of those people can be and, and the toll that it takes on them. all those guys. They're finding a way to deal with the toll that it takes on them. Mm -hmm. You know, like Tom Sizemore is a crazy person. 
crazy. But that's how he copes. His character was nuts. I know. You just you you're just scared with it because you don't know what's going to happen from one frame to the next. He almost kills Nicholas Cage. He does. In an yeah. yeah, yeah, he does. You know, it, it's and that's the thing. It's not even the only accident in the movie. They laugh an accident off at one point. That's how insane these guys are, and the kind of stress and toll that this work really puts on them. Yeah. And this movie does a great job explaining that and getting to that. Do you think the relationship between Patricia Arquette and um, Frank is one of love or is it just mutual understanding? Mutual understanding. Yeah, I don't think this is a love story. No, no, it's not a love story. This is just two humans connecting, you know, whether their genitals connect at some point is up in the air. I mean, it's always a possibility, but it's not a love story in any way, shape or form. I mean, it's about the love the two humans can share when they're both in pain. That's about it. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing romantic about it, though. Do you think the narration adds to adds to this movie or takes away from it? It's used sparingly. It is. Yeah. Which I appreciate because <laughs> I am not a fan of narration. Yeah. One of these days, I'm going to actually take the time to show you the Blade Runner theatrical cut where you'll be shocked by the amount of narration in it. Oh, my God. Because you would think it just has a couple, but there's quite a bit of narration. I was surprised when I went back and watched it like five years ago. I was like, oh, my God, this did have a lot of narration in it. So- it is used sparingly. You have to be real careful about how you use narration. I can remember my old screenwriting professor throwing things at me. Don't give away plot details or don't reveal plot details in the narration. So you, you have to be careful about what you do in, in, in your narration. Yeah, There's rules to it and stuff like that. Rules are made to be broken, but it, it can be a difficult thing. But Nick Cage is pretty effortless here. Why do you think he has so much guilt for that girl, Rose, that died? I mean, she's in the whole movie and... It's like he only chose her for some reason. I'm sure he's seen several people die. He sees one person die in the whole course of the weekend. Yeah. Well, I I think the thing about that death is he made a mistake. Sometimes people get there and there's nothing you can do. Like you can just try to save them and make them comfortable, but they're going to die. Yeah, because the scene of her death is very, I don't want to say by the numbers. Yeah. But it feels that way. It does. And all he's trying to do is get the is intubate, her. intubate her. And he fails over and over yeah. and over again until she expires. And that is what hangs with him. Is that something he's done a hundred thousand times over and over again. He couldn't do and it got this girl killed. Like that's a death that he really feel the blood. He can feel the blood on his hands every time he looks down. Even though it's just a mistake. Yeah. He's overworked. He was tired. He screwed up. You know, I mean, he could probably barely hold his hands straight. I mean, yeah, he could have been drinking, but still, you know, it it was just a mistake, but he can't, he can't live with it. You know, and I I think, I think that's what haunts him more so than anything else. Like he'll take the, there's nothing you can do about chance. You know, if you go there and some guy's half burnt, you know, he's going to, he's going to expire. There's nothing you can do, but he could have saved that girl if he'd have just gotten things right. Didn't. He never can. He He kept getting into her stomach. Yeah. Um, I just love this movie. This was a good movie. Yeah, yeah, it really good is. Good choice yeah. for Nicolas Cage. Frank goes and kills the old man. He watches him die. Yeah. Why do you think he decided to do that? I know he's trying to give Patricia Arquette's family a little piece, make a decision for them that they couldn't make on their own, the right decision. Yeah. So, but still, why do you think that happened? I mean, just that entirely. Like, he feels sympathy for the man. Like, there's that great scene earlier where the doctors are matter-of-factly just keeping him alive. Yeah. Like, it's just something they got to do. Like, just get him with that. He'll come back. He always does. 
17 times. 17 times. He coded or something yeah, like that. The, the, his body was begging to die. Yeah. Begging to die, and they wouldn't let him. And, you know, you can read that in a lot of ways, but I, I, of all the, the crazy things that he does, that might be the least crazy. He was suffering. He was ready to go. It was over. And but so he took it upon himself to make that decision. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Because everyone else was making the wrong decision in, in his eyes. You know, because he can. You know, there's a line early in the film where he says, something takes over my hands and they do more than I could ever do as a man when he talks about trying to save people. And I think that's just something that a paramedic can do when they've been in the field long enough. Like he can see into that guy's eyes and he knows like the suffering that's there. Yeah. He envisions him talking. Yeah. I think there's a nice sequence where he's like, no, please don't like it. But it's not even like a pleading sort of tone. Like the guy is very matter of fact about how it's said in his head. And, you know, the, 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 the actor does a fantastic job with his eyes, looking right into the camera to convey what that narration is telling you. Like, he's putting the emotion on it that's not in the voice, and I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, cause that means something, because that's all Nick Cage is seeing. That voice is just there as a translation for the audience. So Scorsese doesn't have to put subtitles. But I think we all could have figured it out. But he wants to be sure that we know what's going on inside of Frank's head at that moment in time. And that's what sets him up to do that because he has gone through the entire film thinking that's the right way to do it. There's a bunch of times he even talks to to Rose, right? Rose. To Rose and mentions that her father's at the end, like prepping her, getting her ready, you know, while he says, are you okay? And stuff like that. He always has a way of making sure to, to note to her that her father is already dead. Yeah. Much like Nick Cage, he too is a zombie, just can't die. You know, it's. Yeah. Nicholas Cage can't. Get away from this job. No, it's it's one of the it's movie's better scene. running jokes. When, when he's just like, you said if I came in late, I'd be fired. I'm an hour late. Fire me. I need you, baby. I need you. I'll fire you tomorrow. I promise. Yeah, I'll fire you tomorrow. I promise. You come in tomorrow, fire you first thing. <laughs> and that's the thing. You just, you, you don't leave this job. You know, no. you can't, you know, nobody wants to do it. It's awful. <laughs> it looks terrible. So I, I can certainly understand that. Well, is there anything else that you want to add about this movie before we move on to the reviews? I mean, I could talk about it for another hour if we're going to be perfectly honest. And, you know, it's one of the movies that truly deserves it. But I think we can, we can move on. If this is, I'm giving both films today a very strong recommends. Yeah. Bringing Out the Dead is probably one of the strongest recommends I can give you because it is highly underrated. I saw it for the first time, folks, and I enjoyed it greatly. Yeah, I, I really recommend you guys stop whatever you do and check it out. Uh, it's on HBO Max. I don't know how long it's going to be there. If not, find whatever nefarious means you can to, to watch this film because it really is fantastic. Yeah, I agree. Okay, Face Off got a 4.3 for user review, 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, 7.3 on IMDb. Bringing Out the Dead got a 3.3 user review. 73% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 6.8 on IMDb. So most people liked Face Off before they liked Bringing Out the Dead. But a lot of people had problems with this being a Scorsese movie. They didn't feel yeah. like it was a Scorsese. At least what I rev- when I was reading the reviews. Yeah, yeah. As I said, this, this film got nice reviews at the time, but just never really, n- never really caught on in any way, shape, or form. It just, like I said, nobody really talked about it at all, you know, coming to the end of the year for Oscars in 99. I rank this movie as one of the most awful things I've ever seen. Not only is it totally unbelievable, but the situations are so unpleasant, so cloying, so awful that it's most more like a nightmare than just won't end. And when I say won't end, I mean it. This movie drags on the way past the comfort level. 
It keeps going from one improbable situation to another, linked by flashy chase scenes until you're begging for some kind of resolution. The acting of Nick Cage and John Travolta are just about what you would expect. That is to say, totally over the top. Chewing on the scenery is a polite term for what they do. As for the talents of John Woo, well, I've heard all about his voices as opera, philosophy of filmmaking, but I just don't buy it. Every movie I've seen him of him is, 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 isn't scary or exciting or shocking. It's uncomfortable, like sitting on a sharp spike. I saw this movie years ago in the theater, but it still sticks with me. I guess that, would, that should say something about its power, but years ago I saw a dead deer sitting by the side of the road. It was rotting in the heat. Its muscles had contracted. It smelled awful, and it looked like a mummy. That experience stuck with me, too. Seeing face-off was like (laughs) seeing that deer. Unpleasant, nauseating, and unnecessary. You know, for the first 30 seconds of that review, I didn't know which movie you were talking about. Oh, really? Yeah, because he's like, it's movies like a nightmare. It's unrealistic. We go from a chase to chase. And I'm like, this could be either film. (laughs) Well, I guess that'll be good for the audience. Yeah, yeah. No, it's... um, well, that guy really didn't like Face Off. No. I, I can't. I mean, I can disagree with some points uh, that he has, but man, that homeboy did not dig that movie at all. To get the dead deer references is pretty tough. I'm going to reference that dead deer and stuff that we do in the future. So that's, I, yeah. I like that little. I did too. I like that's that why I wanted to movie. read it. That's yeah, a hell of a slam. Now, Bringing Out the Dead, a one-star review. Having watched the trailer of Bringing Out the Dead, I looked forward to some kind of redemptive, redeeming filmmaking. It wasn't there. I've never been more disappointed in film as I went in with high expectations. If I wanted Anthology of Grief from Nicolas Cage, I could write him a letter asking him how he felt. The film had some good parts, but they were too few and far in between. You do that for any movie. (laughs) There was no credible storyline. As a dark genre, the movie failed and was lost in the flickering lights of illogic. I had the poor sense of remaining throughout the length of the film, and I wished I would have gotten up the numerous times I felt I should have. Just about ready to leave, Ving Rams made me sit back down. I was never more disappointed in a film as it never seemed to go anywhere and left you feeling you shouldn't go anywhere either. I can certainly understand people having issues with the kind of movie that it is because it can be pretty intense and very dark. Yeah. It sounds like he wasn't really ready for a movie to be that dark and serious. No. Yeah. And, and listen, if you're not in the mood for this kind of flick, like you just don't go and say on a happy Saturday, say, hey, let's watch Requiem Requ- for a Dream. Yeah. It's not what you do. <laughs> like it's it's just not done. And the same thing with this movie. This movie isn't quite as dark as that. No. But it I mean it still deals with a, a high level of darkness. So if you're not ready for for what this movie is going to bring at you, then you're probably going to have a pretty bad time watching it's it. It's a dark comedy. Yeah. Yeah, like I said there are some light moments in it, but like I said th- this movie will, you know, I mean, it'll hit you hard emotionally. That's yeah. what Scorsese is setting out to do and he will do it. You know, with Nick Nick Cage's eyes, it's pretty easy to do. Yeah. Well, everybody, if you want to come leave us some comments, uh, you can go to grittyrebootcast at gmail.com and let us know how you feel about the podcast or anything else you want to say. Um, we take criticism, too. If you want to criticize what we do, that's good. We're, we're good with that. That's right. Yeah, you can let us know that there, or you can find us at Gritty Reboot at Instagram and TikTok as well, as long as TikTok remains unbanned. Yeah. We uh, will stay there until then, so... But by all means, uh, reach out and let us know something. Give us a request for a movie to do or just say hello. All right. See you guys. <laughs>